Good morning, Tuolumne Community Baptist Church. It's so glad to see you tuning in. I'm so glad that you're here. You know, it's Sunday morning and it's still raining. Oh, Lord, I keep praying for a sunny Sunday. I was so excited that we had a really nice day yesterday, but today it's raining again. Praise God, the grass is going to be green. It's growing. All is well. Today, we're in part number three of my road to Calvary. Uh, We're going to be trying to get through the rest of chapter 19 and through chapter 20, at least as far as I can get you. Um, From here on out, we're about 48 hours away from the cross in Jesus' life. And it doesn't seem that way when we read the, the context of this message, but You'll notice next week things are going to start to speed up as far as getting towards his uh, conviction falsely and his crucifixion. But we'll be heading there as we go. I hope you're enjoying the series. Um, I'm just really tired today. I'm not really sure why, but I just am. So praise God. I'm so glad to be able to be here to minister the gospel to all of you. I hope you enjoy this message. God bless you. We'll see you all soon. Well, we're into week three of my road to Calvary. We're, we're looking at through the eyes of Luke, taking a trip to Calvary. We're going to finish out chapter 19, and hopefully we're going to get through chapter 20. It looks like I got plenty of time to be able to do that. Um, there's so much. You know, like I, I skipped a fair portion of 20 just so I could get through. I thought, okay, we don't need to hear about that particular. But there's so many stories. It's so wonderful to, to read. But at this point, when we finish 20 today, we're about 48 hours away from the crucifixion. And it's hard to, you can't depict it in what we're reading here yet. You can't really see it happening But in 21, 22, 23, and 24, it really starts to escalate uh, the time, you know, because from chapter 1 of Luke all the way to chapter 19 has been just about Jesus' life and his ministry and all the wonders that he did while he was here. And then these last few chapters are really focused in on Calvary. And that's what we're going to be looking at together over the next few weeks. But last week we finished about halfway through chapter 19. And we had seen the transformation of Zacchaeus. Remember him, the tax collector? This was amazing to see such a complete turnaround in one one man's life. For us, in most cases, it's more of a process. The more we learn, the more we fall in love with our Savior. That just seems to be the way it is. But I believe this particular transformation, it had to do with where he was at, Zacchaeus was at in his life. When Jesus called him by his name, it was just an amazing thing. Zacchaeus, I believe, was a love-starved man, being so hated by his own people. And when Jesus called his name, everything, included his once greedy heart, changed. I mean, everything changed by him just simply calling out his name. Isn't that amazing? Then we heard about the parable of the ten minus, the ten servants of the ten minus, We don't have to read that again or go through that again, but we do need to realize that we've all been been given a gift that is so precious that we must share it. 
It turns out our lives are all about increasing the kingdom of God. I tell people all the time, you know, especially, you know, I see these young men and even some old men in jail and, and they're, getting, they're interested in Christ and they're looking into Christianity and they're, wow, he can do this for me and this for me and that for me. And I, yeah, yeah, that's what he can do. But you will find out if you stick with it. It's not about you at all. It's about him. It's about what he's done for us and how you can share that with somebody else. Because inevitably, when you come to that place in Christ, it's not about you. It's about the people in your world. When I say your world, I had one guy at jail got mad at me over that. And I had to calm him down and say, no, your world is the people that I will never meet. Family members, aunts, uncles, cousins, friends, people you work with, people that probably I will never come in contact. But you take the good news of Jesus Christ that I've given you and you take it to them. I tell you for sure it will change your world. And it does. So let's get into Luke 19. We're going to start with verse 29. Did that say 28? Okay, I'll read from up there. <laughs> when he had said this, he went ahead going to Jerusalem. Verse 29, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, he sent his two disciples saying to them, go to the village opposite you where you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Loose it and bring it here. And I'm sure the guys were thinking, okay, Lord, you want us to walk up, get some new colt? That's like going up to a new Ford, baby. You know, the brand new truck. Go up to the dealership and just walk up and just get in it as if you could drive away. And if anyone asks you, are you why are you loosing it? Thus, you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Verse 32, so... So who, so those who he sent went their way and found it just as he said. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing my colt? You know, I could see the guy. What are you guys doing? That's a brand new colt. Nobody's ever rode it. What are you doing? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Isn't that a miracle? And the guy says, oh, okay. Okay. That's all it was. Verse 35, then he brought it to him, brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and he sat Jesus on him. And he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Verse 37, then as he was now drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice. Now, you got to realize this wasn't just the 12 now. There's a whole multitude of people that are following along. This is the triumphal entry. And they're saying, praise God with a loud voice, with all the mighty works that they had seen. Verse 38 saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I want you to see this other scripture in Mark that has very much the same thing. Mark 9, 11, verse 9 and 10 says, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David 
that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna on, in the highest. It's a very interesting thing. These people were calling out praises to Jesus. And they were even using his messianic, messianic title, Son of David. I mean, it's like these people are sold out and they know, and it's these very same people who are going to be crying out, crucify him, crucify him in just a few days. Let's go back to Luke 39. Luke 39 says, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They were trying to make the people to stop praising God for Jesus. It, it was very annoying for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the religious sect. They just didn't like what was happening. And he said, rebuke your disciples. Make them be quiet. Verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Isn't that amazing? In simpler words, God is going to get the glory. God is going to be praised. If we choose not to, believe me, he is going to get the glory. Verse 41, and as they drew near, they saw the city. He saw the city and wept over it. He wept over it. Isn't that kind of an interesting thing? Imagine where he's at. All these people are behind him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus is the son of David. His messianic title, they're crying out his name, giving him praises. What, what a proud moment it must have been. And yet he gets to this place where he can see clearly the city of Jerusalem. And he begins to weep. People cry a lot for a lot of reasons. Some are just crybabies like me. I cry over nearly every episode of Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> it's a good thing there's none of the young kids here because they'd say, Little House on the what? Every time Laura would get in trouble and old Pa would, you know, he'd fix the problem, I'd cry. I'm just a crybaby. I, I don't know. Joe looks at me and goes, why are you crying? A little house in the prayer? I, I just, I do. I'm, I cry, you know, very easily. Anything emotional on TV, she can look at me and I'm crying. She's not. I'm crying. But a lot of people cry for a lot of reasons. But here it says that he wept. Jesus, the son of the God came into the world as a human being. He experienced the fullness of his humanity, including something that we all know all too well, emotions. It might be surprising to think why Jesus wept. And he's cried more than once in the Bible. It's been twice recorded in the New Testament, but I think there are probably many times that Jesus cried and wept. In fact, we know that he did. Listen to this. This is John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. It's the shortest scripture in the Bible. If there's anything that you can memorize, memorize that one. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. Two words. But he he wept. When he this is when he got to the tomb of Lazarus. He died some four days earlier. Jesus and Lazarus were close friends. Lazarus was the brother of Mary, Martha. Remember that story in John. The Bible tells us that Jesus loved them very much. All the grief over Lazarus' death when he got there moved Jesus to tears, even though Jesus knew that he was going to resurrect him. You know, it could have been that he was crying over the fact that 
you know, he's got to bring him back from paradise. <laughs> and he's going to have to die again. He might have been crying for Lazarus' sake, for all we know. But I think that he saw the emotions of the people that were dearest to him, his dearest friends. And he's seen how broken they were, but yet he had to stay away for those four days because there was a plan to this. It was a purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead. All that grief over Lazarus' death moved Jesus to tears. He later turned the grief into joy when he resurrected Lazarus. You can see that in 11.38, John 11.38. And this miracle was the tipping point that made the religious leaders decide to kill him. I want you to see this, John 11.53. Can you get back to that one? There you go. Then from that day, they plotted to put him to death. That was right after he raised Lazarus from the dead. They plotted. The second time he cried is when he came near and behold the city. This is where we're at right now in Jerusalem. He's coming into his time. That's where verse 41 comes in in Luke. It's the only gospel writer that recorded this reaction of Jesus, our Savior, knew that the people in Jerusalem would soon reject and condemn him. But I don't think that's what was bothering him, and that's why he's crying, because Jesus is going to tell us here in just the next scripture or so of why he was crying. He also knew the calamity that would come upon the city, and that would come in just a few, about 38 years from now, this whole city is going to be destroyed. He knew that was coming. It was going to happen just a few decades later. But here I want to show you more emotion in his humanity. Now I want you to look at Hebrews 5, 7. There you go. Who in those days, the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus here. He said, in, who in the days of his flesh, notice it's capital H, referring to Jesus, in his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Man, there's so much in that scripture. It means that we need to cry out. It's important that we cry out. When we're in a tough situation and we don't understand exactly what's going on, we can cry out to God. And it says he was heard because of his godly fear. But God didn't take the cup away from him, did he? Jesus said, if you could take the cup away from me, if I don't have to do this, Lord, please do so. But if not, your will, not my will. In the context of this verse, it doesn't identify when exactly this happened, but it was clear that it was very close to Jesus' death. Some scholars, scholars attribute it to this reference to Jesus' prayers in the garden, and I, I do too. Now, I want us to look at Luke 22. We're going to be there probably next week, but I want us to see this now because it's so moving. I want you to see it. Luke 23, 22, verses 43, 44. Then the angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. This is probably right when the writer in Hebrews was writing that statement that he was crying out vehemently with tears that Jesus, that God sent him an angel to strengthen him. In verse 44, and being in agony, he pleaded more earnestly. Then his sweat became like droplets of blood falling to the ground. 
I know we're not there yet, but this is so moving to see Jesus's humanity. He knew what was going to happen to him. He knew the torture that he was going to have to go through. And he was suffering for it, but he knew it had to be done. It's interesting that Luke, the physician, uh, would be the one who mentioned this rare medical condition. It's a rare disorder called hematidrosis. hematidrosis. Some droplets have been, been filled with blood, uh, and it, it comes out of our pores just like sweat. There have been very few cases, and it's rare, but it does exist. Jesus was a man just like you and me in his humanity. But there is a difference. He is our Savior, and he is God. And he did this for you and me. So getting back to our story, let's go back to 1942, Luke 1942, saying that now he's going to talk about why he was weeping. He said, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now are hidden from your eyes. It's so important to see this. Look at verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you and surround you and close you in on every side. He's prophesying now over Jerusalem. Verse 44, and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you do not know that your time of visitation. Well, how does that relate to us, Pastor? Do you realize he's visiting each and every one of you every day and you need to realize that maybe today is your day to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? When we continually just continue to reject him over and over again, we continue. Eventually, he says, you'll be brought down. It'll come to an end. And it won't be pleasant. You won't see heaven. That's what he was saying. That's why he was weeping. He wasn't weeping for what he had to go through. He was weeping for those he knew who did not believe what was about to happen. That he truly was the son of God. So this prophecy in April 70 AD, about 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, about the same time as the Passover, the Roman general Titus besieged pilgrims to enter the city, but refused to let them go, thus strategically depleting food and water supply in Jerusalem. He was going to destroy the city and did. Josephus, a Jew who had commanded rebel forces but had defected to the Roman cause, attempted to negotiate a settlement, but because he was not trusted by the Romans and was despised by the rebels, the talks went nowhere. And the Romans encycled the city and the walls, and they cut off supplies to the city and completely, by therefore starving the Jews that were there and eventually burnt the, the place down to the ground. So Jesus had predicted this was coming. This is why he was crying. He knew this was ahead of him. But your peace is in me. Accept me now. Believe that I am truly the Son of God. I came to save a lost and dying world. Luke 19, 45. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold. You guys ever heard that one before? You guys remember? 
back in the book of John when his first time into Jerusalem for the Passover, he made that whip and he went in and he started chasing all the money merchants out, the money changers, the stock, all that was being sold there. He did the same thing on his last Passover. This isn't the first time that Jesus had exercised his frustration on the money changers. Verse 46, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. So here we are at the temple now. And he's going in and he's teaching. It's, it's very common for rabbis to go into the temple courtyard, pick a place in, in the courtyard and begin to teach the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, and answer questions and explain things of God to them. Well, here's Jesus doing the very same thing. And it's interesting. They had rabbinical schools back then. Priests had to receive a rabbi degree to be able to teach and answer questions. It was customary for a rabbinical priest to pick a spot in the temple courtyard and teach the Old Testament scriptures. They called Jesus rabbi, but he had never attended their schools. This is just another one of those reasons Pharisees and Sadducees sought to kill him. People saw that he knew and was smarter than any of the other rabbis that were coming to teach, but he didn't have their special degree. Verse 48 and were unable to do anything about it, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. You realize that jealousy is a very lethal weapon. I hope you realize that. Jealousy is fear manifest in your life. If you find yourself jealous, you need to look at it and say, what am I afraid of? Because it's fear manifest and it's a killer. Relationships cannot deal with jealousy. It's just not gonna work. Now let's go to Luke 20, Luke 20, verse 1. Now it happened in one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes and the teachers and the elders confronted him. And they spoke to him, saying, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority. You don't have a rabbinical license. You didn't go to our pastoral school. You don't have the right to be here teaching. Who give you the authority and these miracles that you say you do? Where does that come from? They did not believe that he is the Messiah. And this is where it all starts, the questioning, trying to make him actually condemn himself. But Jesus said, in verse 3, he answered and said, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say it's from heaven, he will say, Then why do you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people around here will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered him and said, We do not know where it is from. But Jesus said to him, to them, Neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. We're going to jump now down to verse 19 because we have to move along. The few verses that we're missing here that you can read, this is another set of questions that they're asking him, and you can read that for yourself. It's, it, it is kind of interesting, but I want to get through this. 
So now we go to verse 19. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay their hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. See, he had just spoke his parable, the one that I skipped that you guys can read. He just spoke it about them, and the parable obviously made them look really bad. And so it made them all the matter. They wanted to put their hands on him. Verse 20, so they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous. I think that is so interesting. Spies that are pretending to be righteous, who are they? They're the religious leaders who are pretending to be righteous and are not righteous at all. But that's okay. We'll look at their spies. That they might seize him on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the Roman governor. Verse 21. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Oh my, they're complimenting him. Is it lawful? For us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Oh, we're going to get him on this one. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Wow, Jesus, what are you going to say? Verse 25, verse 24 says, Show me a denarius. Whose name and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Booyah. I mean, he couldn't have answered it any better. It was absolutely beautiful. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answers and kept silent for a little while. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and ask. See, that was all the Pharisees were trying their best shot. So now we'll get to Sadducees. There's two sects of religious leaders that are in this area at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees are one thing and the Sadducees are another. They do not believe in the resurrection. They honestly believe when you're dead, you're dead. Really sad, huh? That's why they call them Sadducee. Verse 28 saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. I'm going to show you in a minute where they're pulling this from. And you got to remember, these are the Sadducees that are talking about, we don't believe in resurrection, but they're asking a resurrection question. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. And then the third took her in the same like manner, the seven also, they had left no children and died. Don't they see the woman is barren? Come on. And she's probably killing these guys off for their land. That black widow, I can see it. We know that this is a ridiculous story. But he says, least of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had had her as wife. Sounds crazy, but there's a little bit of truth in what they're saying. I want to show you that. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. 
There you go. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, and the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family, her husband's brother shall go into her and make her his wife and perform the duty of her husband's brother to her. Verse 6, And it shall be that the firstborn son that she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Verse 7, But if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel, and he will not perform the duty of my brother's husband's. This becomes a very serious deal. Now, if he is already married, he doesn't have to marry her. That gets him off the hook. If he doesn't want to marry her because he doesn't like her, he's got a problem in these Old Testament times. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her. I'm sorry, I don't like her. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal, from his foot, which is a historical truth that they would do, spit in his face, answer and say, so shall it be done the man who will not build his brother's house. And the man shall be called, and it shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has sandal removed. That's a crazy story, but that was the truth. That was the, aren't you glad we live in grace we don't have to deal with it. Don't you dare spit in my face or try to remove my shoe. But all this, believe me, all this, how Jesus answers is going to show us a little glimpse of heaven. And I want you to see this. Jesus is so merciful in his answer. In the process, he shows us just a little bit of heaven, not the beauty or the majesty of heaven, but what our relationships will be like. That what life will be like. So let's look at how he answered. Verse 34. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Okay, let me, so you understand. The sons of this age, present time, where we live. Men are married, women are given in marriage. Does that make sense? Okay, men are married, women are given in marriage. Verse 35. But those who are counted worthy to obtain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither will marry or be given in marriage. Verse 36, nor that can they die anymore, for they are equal with the angels. And, you know, Jesus threw that in there, equal with the angels, simply because the Sadducees did not believe in angels. <laughs> so Jesus is not, he's giving a double whammy. This is what's going to happen in the resurrection. And by the way, there's angels there too. And are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Verse 37, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. When he called the Lord, the Lord God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. See, Moses wouldn't have been, God wouldn't have been calling those names out if he wasn't still the God of them. They're not dead. They're with him. And they're hundreds of years prior to, to Moses. Verse 38 says, For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all, 
for all live in him. Verse 39, then some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well. And after that, they dared not to question him anymore. That was the Sadducees. Verse 40, but after that, they dared not to question him anymore. Verse 41, and he said to them, how can you say that the Christ is the son of David? So now he's asking them, because he had heard them calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Christ, the son of David. He said, how can you say that Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? He's asking the Sadducees this. Then in the hearing, all the people said to his disciples, verse 46, beware of the scribes who desire who desire to go around in long robes, <clears throat> love greetings in the marketplace, best seats in the synagogues, and the best seats at the feasts, who devour widows' houses for pretense, make long prayers. These who receive greater, com greater condemnation. So Jesus now is, is really putting them down. Beware. People beware of these people who act all religious. They want the best seats in the house. We, we, they want you to praise them because of their fasting and their long prayers that they do. Man, it just sounded so holy. Don't trust that. They tried to trick, trick Jesus three times. Once in his authority of who gives it to him. The second one was in the taxes. Who do we pay it to? And the third was marriage and the resurrection. And that is really the most ridiculous thing, knowing they did not believe in the resurrection. Yet it is them who said he had spoken well. You know, we, we have Sadducees today. You can look it up. There, there are Sadducees, there are people, roughly a quarter of all U.S. adults, 26 per se, they do not believe in heaven or hell, including 7% who do not believe in some kind of afterlife, 17% who do not believe in any afterlife at all. This is all so very sad, you see, and it is. Jesus gives us a glimpse of heaven where, where we're not married or given in marriage. Remember, we're married, men and women are given in marriage. Remember, men are married and women are given in marriage. For some, this may seem stressful. When you've been married for a long time, Bob and Roxana, was it 45 years? 45 years, that's a long time. And when I get to heaven, you mean I'm not going to be married to Bob? That just doesn't sound right, does it? It just said, come on, Bob's my husband. Yes. Well, no, you'll be married to Jesus. But you'll still have Bob as your best friend. He'll still be right there with you. I mean, maybe you've had a husband that you can't stand, you know? And you're going, that guy ain't going to heaven. I tell you, he ain't going to heaven. Well, you know, please pray before he dies. But when we get to heaven, it's gonna be so different. And Jesus gave us a little bit of picture of what heaven is gonna look like. You know, when you've been married and you love the marriage that you've been, you, it's gonna be not, it's gonna be better than what you have here. We see heaven as, you know, streets of gold and massive houses and mansions and all the wonderful things that we see 
it's going to be better than that. Well, our relationships are going to be better than what we have here. But think about the millions of people, me included, that have been married more than once. Hopefully they're saved. These relationships will be complete and perfect. How can I say this? Well, because we're married to Jesus. I don't have to worry. You know, some of you say, well, I knew your past wife, Sonia. I knew, you know, and she gets to heaven and meets Joe. She's not going to be happy. You know what? It's not going to be that way at all. <laughs> I see Tony laughing. He's going, I know her. I, I know. It's not going to be that way at all. We're going to love one another. We're going to be like one unit. We are the bride of Christ. We're going to be unit, united together with one another. We don't have to worry about marriage or relationships or sin or anything like that. Remember, we are the bride of Christ. Everything about heaven is perfect without sin and death. That's why there are no more tears. That's why we, it can only mean our relationships will be better also. More complete and more perfect. Got just a few more scriptures here I want to show you. Revelations 19. 7 and 8 says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Do you guys know who the wife is? Me. Amen. We are his wife. You know, it's a bold thing for a man to say me, you know, because we see ourselves as your wife, but we are married to Christ. We are his in verse 8, he says, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You know, this is where we get the white wedding that we have here on earth. The, you know, the bride's dress, it's, it's the pureness, it's the purity of the whole thing. That's why she wears white. And we are going to be married to Christ. We are his. Ephesians 5.31 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and a mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We will be one flesh with Jesus Christ. Not in the way that we know here on earth with what makes one flesh. We can't even imagine how it will be. We will be so loved and so complete. Nothing missing, nothing broken. We will know one another I promise you, we will know one another. We will also know him perfectly. It's going to be an amazing thing. And that's what Jesus was showing us in that scripture. Last scripture, John 5, 24 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Do you realize that Christianity is the only religion in the world that says that we pass from death into life? None other. Only Christianity. There's many things that the Buddhists believe and the Muslims believe, but it does not pass from death into life. We do. We have life after death. We are preparing ourselves as a church to be that bride of Christ, that perfect, stainless white bride of Christ. And knowing my own life, look, judging myself, I can't judge you, but just judging myself, I go, Lord, 
there's still a lot of things I need to clean up. There's still a lot of things I need to fix about my life to be that perfect bride for you because I want to be his bride. I want to know exactly what he needs me to do here on this earth. And the first thing we have to do as a Christian is we have to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the first thing. From there, we begin to grow. It's interesting. I had a conversation, not with an inmate, but with a, a lieutenant at the jail. And it got kind of intimate. We were talking about our faith. He says, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I said, you do? Where do you go to church? He says, oh, well, we don't go to church. And I said, but that's concerning. He says, why? I said, I believe in Jesus. Satan does too. He believes in Jesus. He's certainly not going to heaven. So just the fact that you believe isn't enough. You have to accept him in your heart. And once you truly do that, God puts a hunger inside of you that makes you want to learn more. I want to know, one, I want to know more about why this God died on a cross for a guy like me. I want to know more why he does what he does and who he is. That's the hunger that he puts inside of us. That's why he gave us the living word of God to read and to study and to grow so we can become more like him. So it's more than just believing in Jesus. It's accepting him in your heart. It's knowing that he resides within you and we have to do that. We have to know that. And then once we have done that, he puts that hunger in us that wants us to know more about him. Why do I feel the way I do? Why? And he puts that love and concern. And eventually it becomes for other people. It's not about you so much anymore. It's about your kids wanting to raise them in a godly fashion. It's your parents wanting to make sure you see them in heaven. It's your neighbors that drive you crazy, but you still know that God loves them. That's what it's truly all about. 